90.3 FM in Montreal and on www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune into the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had. Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You want to be a few? I wasn't Jim Crow. And hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just? Okay, hi and welcome to Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. My name is Gene and I am your host for today's show. We would like to acknowledge that CKUT is located on unceded Haudenosaunee, Anishabeg, Abenaki, and Mohawk territories. I also want to send a shout out to all, the, all our brothers and sisters who are behind bars. We at Prison Radio Show remember you and will do our utmost to help you in the future. Okay, now for some news. This is from a June 24th. 2019 News Post. A top court ruling in British Columbia upholds striking down Canada's solitary confinement law. Court rules that solitary confinement law offends the fundamental norms of a free and democratic society. British Columbia's Court of Appeal has upheld a lower court ruling that struck down Canada's solitary confinement law. The appeal court ruled unanimously that a law that allows for the prolonged and indefinite use of segregation in prison offends the fundamental norms of a free and democratic society. The federal government appealed the B.C. Supreme Court ruling of the legal challenge brought by the B.C. Civil Liberties Association and the John Howard Society of Canada. The appeal court allowed the appeal in part, saying that while the law should be struck down under Section 7 of the Charter, it should not be struck down under Section 15. Section 7 relates to the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, while Section 15 protects equality rights, in this case of mentally ill and indigenous inmates. The court orders new rules for, upholding, for holding prisoners solitary confinement. BC decision imposes conditions on yard time, legal asset, access, indigenous counseling. The British Court of Appeal has given the federal government more time to implement new policies for holding prisoners in solitary confinement but has ordered new conditions in the meantime to limit the violation of inmates' constitutional rights. The charter challenge of Canada's solitary confinement policy was launched by the BC Civil Liberties Association and the John Howard Society of Canada. They argue that keeping inmates in solitary leads to suffering and death, deprives them of fundamental protections, and discriminates against mentally ill and indigenous inmates. In January 2018, the BC Supreme Court struck down the federal solitary confinement policy as unconstitutional. The federal government appealed the ruling even as it proposed reform legislation to eliminate the use of solitary confinement. Parliament passed a new solitary confinement law last Friday, but the BC Civil Liberties Association Executive Director Josh Patterson said it, was still, it still allows for inmates to be kept in cells the size of parking spaces for 22 hours or more a day. The British Columbia Court of Appeal has given the federal government more time to implement new policies for holding prisoners in solitary confinement, but has ordered new conditions in the meantime to limit the violation of Vincent's constitutional right. The charter challenge of Canada's solitary confinement policy was launched by the BC Civil Liberties Association and the John Howard Society of Canada. 
Okay, in January 2018, the BC Court struck down his policy as unconstitutional. You know, the BC, this here, you know, this once in a while we get some good news in the ongoing fight for prison reform and prisoners' rights. This is one of them. Let's all hope that it continues. The time is currently 11.08 a.m. And you're listening to the prison radio show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca. Next, we have a couple of ads to play, followed by another segment in our ongoing history series on Prisoner Justice Day in Canada. This episode features Jean, an ex-prisoner who started doing time before Prisoner Justice Day was launched, and up to recently. He gives us a look at what he saw and experienced over the decades of Prisoner Justice Day in the federal penitentiary system. On Sunday, June 30th, Marcia de Possible is pleased to present an afternoon of music curated by CKUT's long-standing local music radio show, Underground Sounds. Marche de Possible is at the park. It's located on the corner of Bernard Est and Casgrain. There's activities for the kids, food trucks, and a bar. Live music starts at 1.30pm with Tinker Toy Fog Machine, 2.30 Hollow Body, 4pm Lonely Boa, and at 5.30 Nico Rosenberg. Summer is here and it's time to park hang. Sunday, June 30th. Check out Marche de Possible on Facebook or on the Pop Montreal website. Artists for Justice, Together Against Law 21. Sunday, 1 o'clock, in front of... Okay, now we're going to go to Jean's piece, Sarah, on our ongoing history of Prisoner's Justice Day. Welcome to the third episode of What Happened to Prisoner Justice Day a podcast mini-series about the history of prisons in Canada, focusing on differences in the federal prison system in the 1960s to 1980s versus today. The podcast features interviews with former and current prisoners, as well as supporters on the outside. This episode features Jean, who started doing time in Canadian prisons in 1972. My name is Jean. And when did you start doing time in Canadian prisons? 1972 is my first sentence. Okay. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a bit about major differences you see in terms of how people in prison organized in the 70s and 80s and how people organized today. Back in 1972, we still didn't have the Prisoner of Justice Day. So committees were the big thing back in the day because the population was behind the committees. That's all we had. We didn't have TVs in the cell. You didn't have all the stuff you have now. So everybody had to be out in the yard at nighttime. And so there was more interaction with the inmates. And the committee had more power because everybody would follow them. So they could uh, influence a bit the policy inside to a degree. So you started your sentence in 1972, which means you would have been inside for some of the first years of Prisoner Justice Day. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about what the start of Prisoner Justice Day looked like when you were inside, from where you were? Well, at first, we all got on that bandwagon because we understood what it was for, and it was for us. We still had to make sure that everybody was on board because the people on the street were really, uh, really great back then. I don't know exactly nowadays how much, but back then, there was a lot of people on the street. It was international. It was in uh, Amnesty International was here in the cases. So there was a big thing that was well-known across the country. So it was a countrywide thing, not just individual prisons. So we took it as a national uh, idea, 
And we realized we needed to do it because uh, if not, we would just be living in the same conditions that led up to the actual Prisoner's Justice Day reasons for it. So, yeah, it was back then everybody was more passionate more involved, and they would go uh, the whole nine yards. They would not just say, oh, take a few promises from the warden, or he's going to change this, or something like that. We would push for the maximum, and we'd hold out together the whole population. And so it was a better time for Prisoners Justice Day than it is now. Well, I'm curious if people that you started doing time with had stories about the Kingston Pen Riot in 1971 and how it impacted the lead-up to Prisoner Justice Day. Well, I met people over the years who were from the East, but I was in the West at that time. And other than the reasons for Prisoner Justice Day, you know, we knew why. You know, how we were mistreated in the whole, how we were left to die. and We all knew that. We didn't have to be out East to know that. You know, that's what I'm talking about, the guy who was doing time in the Western penitentiaries back then. Personally, I didn't know specifically about the Kingston riot, so I'm not the person to ask for that. But I can just tell you that for us out there, the idea was the reasons for it. Not the riot, but the idea for Prison Justice Day. It was all the mistreatment and all the uh, problems we had for like 100 years before that, too. It wasn't just something that happened in 1972. These were things that had been going on since they started locking people up in Canada. Before Canada was Canada. For all provinces, we had pens. And uh, so it was the idea that everybody understood. How did people in the West find out that Prisoner Justice Day had started? I know I've heard stories of, like, organizers getting transferred to different prisons and the story kind of spreading that way. But do you have a sense of how you guys out West found out that Prisoner Justice Day started and was going to be on August 10th and all that kind of stuff? Well, the usual way back then, you know, like I said, the committees, we were in touch with other committees back in those days, but it was always people, move, like you said, there's a lot of people that moved from pen to pen all the time, and you always had information. But there was people on the street who would phone other people across the country and say, this is what we're doing, this is what's happening, and the people would come to the pen, or their families would come in and bring information. So there's always lots of ways to get information into jail in real time back then. When I say real time, I mean, like, if a decision was made in Toronto, all they had to do was phone somebody in, let's say, uh, Edmonton and to go to a pen or to pass on the word. The information travels in a lot of different ways. Even in letters, you know, it might take a little while, but you could write other inmates back in those days, each other. And uh, the word passed uh, like that. But we all knew it was coming. Like, it wasn't just say, okay, 1972 and here it is. We all knew it was coming. It was building up everybody. I mean, if you're in a federal penitentiary, there's only so many in the country. Everybody knows what's going on. It's building up, building up, and it just, the outlet was Prisoner's Justice Day. If it wasn't that, it would have been something else. I talked to someone, I talked to Bob Gaucher a couple months ago, and he was talking about exactly this thing you're talking about of people on the outside who spread news. And one of the people he cited as someone who spread a lot of news about PJD was Claire Culhane. Were you ever in touch with Claire? Do you have memories of people you knew who were in touch with Claire and what kind of role she played in supporting organizing that was happening on the inside? No, I never met her personally, but I met, I met a lot of inmates over the years who have known her and other people similar to her. have uh, done a lot of great work. She was a really big help for change for the penal system because she was an outside person who had media attention. You know, you can yell and scream all you want behind a locked door in the cell. That ain't going to change a hell of a lot. But everybody yelling maybe a bit, but uh, the thing is when you put it together with somebody who actually is on the outside who's getting media attention... And you got to remember, back at this time, it was Amnesty was listening to this case and everything. So it was like the government knew this was international news, too. So she had a lot more, her voice was heard a lot more. She had a lot more power to help influence change. Yeah, like I said, I never met her, but I know people who did. And everybody spoke very, very highly of her. And the hundreds or thousands of other people who have uh, helped, uh, even the ones who were unnamed, they did, as far as I'm concerned, if they fought for us, if they fought for what was right, let alone for you just a prisoner, you just a fellow human being being treated like that. To me, they're all the same. They're all heroes. I'm curious if you could talk a bit more about reactions that the administration had towards people who were participating in Prisoner Justice Day when it first started. I know there used to be a policy of people getting written up, like getting disciplinary reports for participating. Was there other kinds of repression that the administration did to people? Back when it first started, the administrations took that as a major threat to their way of doing things. To the government, we didn't like it. Wardens in every institution didn't like it. They all tried to crush it at first. Any organizers would be transferred overnight. Back in the day, they didn't take nothing to transfer guys. They could come, i seen whole ranges, 29 guys on a range, bam, gone overnight. They'd come with bags, because you didn't have a lot in your cell back then. They'd come with big, huge paper sacks, fill them up. You and the bag were gone, and like half an hour, 29 guys just went across country. 
So yeah, maybe they had a lot of ways to do things, and uh, you saw people in the hall deny parole hearings. They would deny jobs. They would say, "Okay, you don't go to work, you lose your job, you're locked up, get whatever punishment they wanted to give." So they tried everything they could. But like I said, the vast majority of inmates back in those days believed in what it was, and when it was a fight for something that was right, most of them stuck together. The vast majority stuck together, and they went all the way. They suffered a lot more than they do nowadays. Nowadays, they don't suffer very much because it's legal to do that. If you don't want to go to work, you don't have to. You sit in your cell maybe for the day and get out in the evening, so it's not a big thing. But back then, it was a little bit different. You know, sometimes people have to be prodded and moved along to join the movement. Are there other major moments of resistance that you remember from your years in prison that you would want to talk about other than PJD? Oh, there was, a, you know, for individual penitentiaries, there's always, it was back in the day, there was always something. If we had a committee that took a proposition to the warden and said, okay, we want so-and-so, let's say somebody got locked up on the committee, and they said, listen, if you don't let them out, we're going to shut this police down. And if the warden said no, then everybody would shut it down. Nobody would work, nobody would go to the yard. They'd lock everybody down because well, if you're not going to do what we say, you're going to be barred in your cell. Sometimes they would go for a long time, you know, maybe two, three weeks, and they'd bring sandwiches around and put it on the bars uh, twice a day, and that was it. So there was major things like that. Yeah, we had even like mini riots over jobs, over guards. Let's say a guards come to kill you, kick a guy to hole, and they beat him on the way there in front of everybody. And so, you know, we would have a little mini riots and... Every once in a while, things get a little more rambunctious if things are destroyed. For major disturbances like that, but I mean, not on a level of prisoners just as day, because that was more like countrywide, other countries too, in some respect. But a lot of the stuff that major things that happened in penitentiaries, other than prisoners just as day, dealt with the mistreatment of the prisoners in that particular pen. Not saying that other inmates, other prisoners had riots, they had trouble, they had major disturbances. And But it all boiled down basically to the same thing. It was the treatment of the inmates and what they wanted to do with us. Because, you know, as far as the guards are concerned, the warden concerned, the government's concerned, when you come in, you're a number, and you do what we say, and that's it. If you question anything, you're a threat to their authority. And so they would try to crush it. And if it wasn't us, some couldn't accept, then we would uh, retaliate in any way we could to at least stop or maybe change what happened. Uh, like, it didn't work all the time, that's for sure. But if you didn't try, man, could you imagine if you never fought back against something, even if you thought it wasn't going to work? You'd just get worse and worse and worse. It's the old give an inch, they'll take a mile. And the inmate code back then was really uh, something people believed in, more so than nowadays. It's still there, but not as much. You know, because of that, we did a lot more things. Whether it worked out or not, people at least would stick together and try. In instances in specific pens where people would retaliate, say, against, like the guards beating somebody up on the way to the hole in front of everybody, were those a mix? I would assume those were a mix of, like, spontaneously reacting to things that seemed terrible and organizing things to, like, all decide to do something together at the same time? Like, how did those kinds of things get organized? Were they often very spontaneous and one person takes the lead? Or was it ever, like, the inmates committee is, like, getting input from lots of people on what to decide to do about a specific issue? Like, how did that look? Well, it would start spontaneously. Yeah, guys in the cells would be yelling and throwing things or whatnot. If it was something serious, we always had spokesmen. It was always, like, almost always the committee committee. Because somebody had to be talking to these people. Somebody was designated. Inmates back then, we had elect our committees. We had elect who we wanted that we thought were going to represent us the best. Nowadays, committees are picked by the warden. You know, you can move, you can go, they'll say, no, this guy can't run, this guy can't run, this guy can't run. The ones that do run, they, can't, they have no power. They can't get everybody to do, do anything. And if they did, they're threatened with transfers and everything. You know, back in the day, guys would accept that. Say, well, you're going to transfer, then we'll have another guy take his place. So we, these guys who were elected, and they would actually fight for it, go hardcore, and they'd say, this is that. that what this guy out of the hole, want these guards suspended or moved to another place. And we would fight that. And, and if the warden said no, then we'd say, okay, as soon as you let us out, we go to the yard. We ain't coming back in. If you let us go to work, we'll destroy every goddamn thing. And uh, most of the time, they wouldn't let us out of the cell until it was uh, sort of smoothed down somehow or the other. And sometimes they'd let the guys back out, the guy who got beaten back out. Or they'd transfer him and they transfer others. And you can only go so long in these here, not just riots, but I mean, you know, fighting them whichever way you choose. But, you know, you would do it. And they knew that. So if anything happens major, the first thing that they would do, the wardens, the administration, security, they would run to the committee. Because they knew the committee and they'd say, listen, this is what happened. This is what we're going to do, you know, blah, blah, blah. As much as our committees fought for us, the administration went to our committees too because they were our spokesmen and they had passed the message on. And if it was something the administration said, this is it, and take it to the inmates, 
we'd have a big meeting in the gym. Everybody would be there. And we would say, okay, yes or no. If we told the inmate committee, committee said, this is what they want to do. What do you guys want to do? This or that? And we'd pick. And if we went along with what they wanted or on compromise or whatever, that's what we would do. If we said, no, we're going to keep going and doing this, that's what we would do. But you'll never see that again in Canadian prisons. I tell you right now. All the maximums now are just segregation units. They only let two ranges out at a time. They uh, control everything so much, you'll never get everybody together again. And not only that, even if you did, you couldn't get their heads together because they just don't think the same way now. One of the narratives that people have told me about the way that the Canadian prison system has changed since the 70s is about the role of rehabilitative programming. So I'm curious if you could talk a bit about, like, was there any programming in the 70s that, that was accessible to people? As for programs like anger management, drug abuse, and all that, we actually have more of that nowadays. But I'll tell you the most important thing we do not have anymore is a thing that actually works, something a person could use to get out and stay out. And I'm talking about training programs. Back in the day, you could do cabinet making, you could do print, print, they had printing presses, you could be a welder. Man, there was all kinds of stuff you could do. There were shops all over, instructors all over. There was hobby shops. You could learn how to do hobby by yourself, you know, at nighttime on your spare time after work. All those job programs, all those trades you could learn. You know, we have a few here and there still, but uh, basically most of the pens, they just got rid of them because they don't want to pay the staff to teach these programs. They don't want to pay for all the material to use in these programs. Although you got to remember too, like we were doing a lot of core can stuff. They they still keep the core can shops going as slave labor now. But back in the day, you could learn how to actually do things. And now they would sell some of these things. Like guards would come in and say, "Okay, I want to the constructor. I want a desk made or something." Somebody would make a desk and they would buy it. But you know, there to make it for organizations on the street. You know, you would do that other than core can. But now the only shops they have is core can. So there's no training like that. So people sit in jail, have no training, they do jobs cleaning, sweeping the floor or some damn thing, and they didn't expect people to get out. So that was probably the biggest for me when, it, when you talk about programs. Yeah, they had a few programs back there uh, in, uh, about uh, drug abuse or something like that. But you have a lot more programs nowadays. They all think, okay, well, we're going to teach these people, we'll give them the tools so they don't drink or they don't do drugs or control their anger. Okay, that's well and done. Well, what are you going to do to make them live on the street? I don't care if you're the calmest guy on the street. If you don't have a job and make a dollar, you're <laughs> you know, and they wonder why guys go back to jail. Uh, I know that the way that the administration in prisons have related to protective custody has changed over the years. And I'm curious if changes to how protective custody worked contributed to what you're saying, which is kind of like a decline in solidarity amongst prisoners on the inside. Yeah, back in the day, you know, I'm talking about from my time forward, 1972 on, from what I know personally. In 1972, I went to Drumheller Medium, and within a year, I was transferred to the Max in Saskatchewan. And that was pretty well the worst pen in Canada at that time, because they would take the guys who they considered uh, troublemakers from all the pens in Canada and send them all to PA Pen, because it's in the middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan, you know, a bush. And they had a bunch of old farmers who worked there. Their, their sons worked there. Their fathers worked there. They worked there. Their sons worked there. It was hand-me-down jobs. A lot of these guys were from the Army, too. And uh, so it was a run on pretty strict military type uh, thing. Back in 1972, I was one of the, I was at, at the end of the bread and water thing. I was, did bread and water for two weeks and uh, they were still paddling guys. But Prince Albert Penitentiary was good in one way. It was probably the most violent pen I was ever in. And I've been in every one. But it was also super strict. There was a con code, there was rules and everybody knew what they were and you followed them. And it was the same for everybody. And for protective custody, back then there was no protective custody in Prince Albert Pen. There was over 400 guys in that pen and there was not a protective custody. What happened if anybody checked in, it means they were sent for protection. And believe me, back those days, it was black and white. You're either a good guy or a PC, what's it called? The bad guy. They, you know, in those days, there was, it, was, uh, it was just black and white. There was no gray. So, if there was a protection guy, a guy who went to protection, he was found out he was a rat, you know, a foreman, or he did that on a case on the street, and he came in and found out. If he escaped with his life, he went to, went to the hole, and they had him out of there within a week. They would transfer him to, he grabbed, they used to have little, little RCMP twin-engine water planes from province to province, and they would job guys along the way, and within a week, usually, you, these guys were gone to another pen. 
Then, I'm thinking around 74, they, they started bringing in, they had old dormitories in Prince Albert. They took that and they said, okay, because the inmate committees had so much power because everybody stuck together. And the ones who didn't want to do it, they were forced to do it. And as far as I'm concerned, let's say you had 390 people wanting to do a hunger strike or whatever, lock, uh, sit out in the yard or break things up, and 10 said no. Well, back in the day, they either said yes or they, they were carted off on a stretcher because... You had to have everybody. We wanted to show the man, especially in, P- in Prisoner's Justice Day, too, when that came in. We made sure everybody's doing it. If they didn't, they knew the repercussions. And I changed my mind on some of that. More of a personal choice nowadays. But back in the day when it first started, that was just how it was. So, all across Canada, it wasn't just Prince Albert Penitentiary that they decided that they were going to make a part of custody. Number one, there were so many protective custody in Canada at the time that the mediums and minimums were the most protective custody went. Because otherwise, you know, they would never last in the max. They were getting so full that they said, man, we got no room. Where are we going to put these guys? So they want to try to say, okay, we're going to integrate all the pens. But they just couldn't do that like that. Because they knew that if you have 500 guys in a pen, and none of them are protective custody, or nobody knew, <laughs> some of them might be, but then they couldn't put them there. So what they did is in Prince Albert Pen, and they did similar things in other institutions, they took an old dormitory above one of the workshops, and literally within a month, there was 200 protected. They brought them from God knows where. There was 200 protective custodies in there. They cut our population down to equal the number we had originally. So we had a smaller population, and we had an equal size, almost an equal size, protective custody. And they started doing that in other pens, too. And they wanted to break the con code. They wanted to break the power of the inmate committees. They wanted to break the power of the cons to stick together. And that was one of the ways they did it. Plus, like I said... They had to make room because there was obviously there was getting to be more protective custody. There were guys who were not protective custody. It's not like nowadays where a guy protective custody, you just bounce around pen to pen, no problem. Back in those days, you couldn't go to another pen and somebody send word. So if you called somebody a rat, if you didn't have the proof, you were you were dead. You know, like that was the way it is. If you called me a rat, you better be able to prove it or else you're dead. And vice versa. It was really a super serious thing back then. It's not quite as much like that nowadays. Back then it was. So they knew that. So that's why they kept them separated. And it went on like that for a long time. Then people would go from the max to the mediums and they said, ah, look at all these rats. They said, hey, if you don't handle it, you're gone. So people started, I'm just going to do my time, get the hell out, shut up, and ignore that. But by doing that, it allowed the assimilation of protection with the population. Now, there was a lot of guys, you know, who, you know, like, what are you going to call a protective custody? You know, like, a protective custody, anything. A guy could have uh, got a slap and he was too weak to fight back, so he went to protective custody. That's not right, you know, but that's how it was, too, in some ways, sometimes. All I'm saying is that's how it helped break the power of the inmates to stick together to fight a lot of these things. Because, you know, what are you going to tell a guy? Let's say 50% of the population were guys who were in protection and 50% weren't, but they're all together in the population. And you say, okay, we're not, you don't eat. The guy's going to say, or what? I'm already, he's already PC. What's he going to do? You know, what are you going to do to him? You can't say, oh, check in the PC. He's already been there. You know, as far as he's concerned, you know, he's lost everything. His, his word's no good. But all the things, all the connotations you put with a protective custody guy. What are you going to do? You can't fight half the population type thing. So that's why people started just saying, okay, me, 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 forget everybody else. Just do my time and that. But it's reached a point now where you couldn't get any organization, any serious organization for anything. And I'm not saying it was okay to PC because even some of those PC, they fight for prisoners just as they as strong as guys who weren't. And uh, like I said, you don't know why a person went to PC. So before I was just black and white to me, but now, you know, it's more of a gray thing. But you're asking how it changed the power structure, how things have changed. That's how it changed.
I don't know if I should say this or not. But then my friend, years ago, he told me this. And when everybody started having TVs, they stay in their cells. They go to work, they come back, you know, whatever their job is in the daytime. They go eat supper, they go back, and they sit in their cell watching TV. They didn't come out and join everybody else. So you never seen half the people anymore. And you never see, you couldn't get anybody to organize. Hey, well, they got a TV, you know, they... And inmates pay for everything themselves. They don't get TVs free, so they buy it. But but still, they had access. We pay for our own cable there. And so these guys would stay out of sight. Uh, and it's not just TVs. It was sort of like saying family visits and all a bunch of little things together. This guy might like this thing, and he won't. See, he'll say no to any organization for anything good for their inmates because of this. Another will say another reason. Whatever the reason was, you know, whatever little thing, the little gift they give us, the little cadeau they give us, somebody would like that more than everybody. But it didn't matter. As long as everybody likes something, then they wouldn't stick together, you know. But the TVs, yeah, my friend, he used to call that. He said to me, he said, all everybody's doing is sucking on the glass tit. And that's, that's what they do. They go in there and they're all comforted by this TV. And that's what it was. It, it was a good saying. I really, I, I laughed when, I, when he told me that. But when you think about it, that's true. Because everybody going, it was like, you couldn't drag guys from TVs now. If somebody doesn't have a TV, if you told everybody we're taking these TVs from you, now you have everybody stick together. I swear to God, that might be the only reason you would do it, you know. But, uh, yeah. All these things together, it helped divide the population, it helped control the population. It turned out that everybody just started saying, me, 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 like, I just want to get out. But when you do me, 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 then that's all it is. You're not thinking of the, anybody else. I mean, there has to be a point where you have to say, okay, uh, I'm going to lose something, you know. You have to actually fight for something you believe in. You know, like there's an old saying there, it's a tough life if you don't weaken. And that's how it is. If you don't weaken, if you stick to your principles, you stick to what's right, and you know you're going to pay a price for it, and you still do it, you know, like it's a hard thing to to do, but you really, if you really believe it, you're going to do it. But most people won't do that, you know, if it's going to cause problems to them. Let somebody else get beat. Uh, say, ah, oh, that guy, ah, then they shouldn't have did that to him. Well, let's go and... Uh, Let's go and organize something and we'll uh, fight back. Oh, well, I don't want my name on that. I'm going up for parole in six months and this reason, that reason. But, you know, there are people who still stand up. Unfortunately, they're few and far between, but uh, there are people still. Young people, too, come in. You know, I'm always amazed every time I start saying, ah, these young guys, no, they don't stick together no more, blah, blah. And then I'm always surprised when I see young guys that are uh, just as fervent as I was back when I was a kid. So I'm, I'm happy for that. But things have changed. I'm sure in the future we'll have something else that, that'll cause another uh, Prisoner Justice Day type event. So you mentioned in the last thing you just said about making a decision to get out and the kinds of things that go through your head when you're trying to make that decision. And I've heard you talk before about doing that kind of thing yourself, like having a having a turning point for yourself where you were like, okay, if I keep relating to things the way I've been relating to things inside, I'm never going to get out and deciding to like kind of change how you related, I assume to the administration as like a way to try and get out. Um, do you want to talk a bit more about that, about like that thought process or like what changed for you? I, me personally, I can, yeah, I'll talk about me personally, obviously. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about somebody else. It was a lot of years I was in, I, I figured I was never going to get out. And I had did several bits before that, in and out type thing. And so my mentality was, well, once I got the license, I'm never getting out anyhow. So I continued doing whatever I wanted to. And it ended up in stays, uh, in maximums, and USD. All that fine accumulated where many years after I should have done this, um, you know, sometimes you have to get, some people need to be knocked down a number of times before it sinks in. Basically, I, I finally got beaten down enough mentally, and I wouldn't say physically, but, you know, it takes a toll, but more mentally, you know, you just say, man, is this it? You know, I did like uh, almost 30 years now inside in this last bit. What am I going to do? You know, just because I knew that if I didn't change with my dossier that I had in uh, prison, I mean, for me to get to a medium, they figured that was the greatest thing. You know, the administration said, okay, we're going to give you a chance to go to a medium and you fuck it up, you're back in the, the shoe or you max forever, you know. So they figured that was pretty well the end of the line for me. So I thought too, but I had just made a decision, you know, it took, you know, along the way, you, you start, okay, I'm going to take this program, do this. But nothing is a straight line. You say, okay, today I'm changing and you're changed. It's impossible. You have to go ahead a step, back two steps. Two steps ahead, one step back. You know, like, nothing is just forward and here it is. And it took a lot of years to, to convince them. That back then, we had option B come in. I seen him once a week. The guy was really good who came to see me. He would come with me to see my uh, unit manager and then... 
He'd even talk to the warden once in a while. You know, like it was for the first six months, the unit manager said to me, ah, it's just a gaff. You're just doing this. You don't, you don't, you don't haven't changed. And, blah, blah. and anyhow, it just kept on, kept on. It took me four years and the warden turned me down. Everybody recommended me, a parole officer, even the unit manager by that time had said, I believe you changed, you know. But the warden, for two years, he, I met him three times and he shot me down every time. And then I met him a fourth time. And he says, I'm going to take a chance in you. You know, as many years as I screwed up inside, I built a, you know, a bad uh, dossier for the administration. It took, uh, it took a lot of years. It took like six years from the time I really applied myself before they actually believed me. And by then, I was in for a long, long time. And I was in the medium for a while, uh, quite a few years. So they said, okay. So I finally got to a minimum, and I could see that there was some hope. Something i never seen before, you know. I could actually see, well, you know, if you do these... If you actually uh, do change and you want out and you work hard at it and accept the little setback before, like 15 years ago, okay, you have a setback, okay, forget it. We'll see you in two years or, or something. I'd say, ah, oh, you go get high or something. But, you know, once you accept to take those things, say, okay, I'm going to learn from this. You know, I'm talking personally, you know, and it was just that I got to the end of the line. I was one of the worst inmates in Canada. But anybody can change. You really want to, but it takes time. And, but here I am, you know, so it can be done, you know, but uh, it's a personal choice. Like I said before, you'll never change until you change inside. You can take all the programs, you can tell them all you want, do this, that, but until you inside want to change in yourself. You know, I had to really, I had to fight with my ego a lot of times, man. My ego caused me a lot of problems over the years. Right or wrong, you got to, you know, your ego said, hey, you got to follow the con code, whether it was going to cost you years more in jail or not. You would follow the con code, you would do this or you do that, and you wouldn't put up with shit or anything. But for me personally, I had to learn how to control my ego, and and that all came because I reached the point where I said, hey, if I don't change, I'm back in this shoe for maybe, what, 10 years, go to max and die there. So it was either that or not. And at that point, I was, I finally had smartened up enough or strong enough to move forward. about if we could talk a bit about race and the Canadian prison system and history. I think I read things more recently about how segregated the prison system is these days. Um, I think there's like specific prisons in the federal system where they will send more black folks and there's specific prisons. I know in the, in the West, like a lot higher percentage of the population are indigenous people. Um, has that always been something that you've seen happen across the prison system? And then do you have examples of like ways that race uh, contributed to dynamics amongst people on the inside? Well, back in uh, 1972, I was out west, so was, uh, the native population in prisons was, was quite large, in the prairie regions especially. And back then, too, you only had, uh, the only maximum was Prince Albert Penn. You had uh, Stony Mountain Medium in Manitoba. Uh, Alberta, you had Drumheller at that time. And later, they added uh, Edmonton Max. But there was a large native population back then. And, yeah, it was changed. I, I can tell you back then, there was a lot of racism. It was a thing, uh, there was a lot more racism I, that I seen then than there is now. But the guards are also racist, all, all white farmers from their area. And uh, I wouldn't say all, but the majority of them would always take the white con side. And back in those days, there used to be the Native Brotherhood, the Red Fist painted on their jackets there. They painted them themselves on our green prison clothes. And it was a thing like uh, their leaders, if they seen a Native guy talking to a white guy, you talk to him again, you're dead. And white guys would do the same thing. It was really... A, Whenever there was any fight between natives and whites, it was all the natives against all the whites. They'd go out in the yard, and uh, it was either uh, baseball bats, knives, or whatever. Like, it seemed like at least once a year there was a major fight in the yard. That was the mentality then. And uh, I had some native friends, and I had some you know, people who didn't, uh, I didn't like. They didn't like me, you know. But, you know, you learn to take everybody as an individual, too. You know, like if a guy, back in those days, if a guy was a good guy, he was a good guy. It didn't matter, too. But there was still that thing, you know, the leaders uh, say this or that on both sides. But 
as individuals, you know, if the guy was a good guy, he was a good guy. It doesn't matter what color he was. And uh, also back then, there was not that many black people in prison. Matter of fact, in uh, Mill Haven, the odd one that come in, would be actually chased out. As more non-whites came to jail, obviously things changed. You have to learn to get along with you because the bottom line is at that point there, what, are you going to fight over race? You know, there is still racism, but it's not like it was. To tell you the truth, I really didn't, other than those things like that, I don't really see the, nowadays any real big racism inmate to inmate. But back in the day, it was like that. I remember in a pair prison, they had a swimming pool. Sign over the little gate going into the swimming pool. No allowed. A friend of ours came in, and uh, he was a black guy. And so uh, we said, come on, we're going swimming. And he goes, wow. Uh, I said, come on. But this guy, he, he was a pretty tough guy, too. Anyhow, we went in there. Everybody looked, and uh, they took off out of the pool. We went in there, and that was it. After that, we ripped that sign down, and anybody could come. But that was just, from, you know, things had to change, and that's how things change sometimes. The only reason nothing happened there is we had a powerful click, and what, you're going to go die over a sign? So nobody said nothing, you know, yeah, yeah, he's a good guy, yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> and uh, But uh, little things like that change, you know, change here, change there. But that's how things go. It doesn't go fast. Nowadays, a large black population in federal prisons, and they move them around because a lot of them are gang guys, like in Ontario. A lot of non-whites that go to prison. And actually, they're the majority in some of these pens now. That's one thing I don't like, but they do still, is they'll pick a whole block and they'll put blacks in there, and they make a whole block and put whites in there, and a whole block and put natives in there, or whatever, and it keeps going. curious to hear more about the shoe. I know you spent time in the shoe in Canada, and I don't think a lot of people in Canada know a lot about the way the shoes work. Um, and I'm curious if you could talk a bit about like your understanding of how they work and maybe a little bit about your time in the shoe as well. Try to remember my, my fading memory here. Uh, the shoes started back, uh, I think the first one was in the CDC in St. Vincent de Paul. And then we had a special handling unit. What it is, okay, first of all, a special handling unit is the end of the line in Canadian prisons. That's, a, that's like Pelican Bay in the States. Thank God they're not as bad as the ones in the States, you know, wow. But they're still the end of the line and still stricter than the other, other places there. So it started like in CDC and uh, Jesus, I think this year is like, early 70s or maybe late 60s. I'm not sure on the date. Then we had one in uh, Mill Haven for a while. Then early 90s, I was in uh, the special handling unit in Prince Albert Penn. They had built a special handling unit there. And basically, you're locked. You come out to eat. They let you go to a little calm room to eat. Um, I think it, only, it was at that point there, it was like six guys at a time come out. And you could eat and then you're back in your cell. You go in the yard, only six of you at a time. And the yard is just a small paved area with a fence, barbed wire, gun tower watching all the time. Everywhere you went, there was gun ports. When you eat, there was gun ports. They're all behind bulletproof gas with guns pointed at you wherever you went. If you left to go from there to another part of the, of the same special handling unit, every time you did, you had to go get put your hands through the bars, get handcuffed. First of all, you had to hand over your running shoes or whatever you were. They checked that. Then you had to put your hands through the, through the bars. You get handcuffed. And then when you came through, the, when you opened the door, they'd pat you down and they'd do one by one. Like they'd open one cell, the guy'd come out to do that. Then once he was on his way with a guard or two, then they'd do another one. So wherever you went, you were handcuffed and, and patted down, checked, you know, they'd frisk you. But basically, some of the shoes were a little bit looser than the others. But I mean, when I came, uh, when that place closed, I transferred to Archambault uh, Special Handling Unit, which is the only uh, Spanish handling unit left in the country. There's no others. They shut the other ones down everywhere. So anyhow, the Special Handling Unit here, I, I think they got enough for, I think there's over 100 people in it right now. And I was there in the 90s. I think 97 I went to a maximum from there. Yeah, there it was a different. You're basically locked up 23 hours a day. You know, like you could come out in the evening for an hour. And you, you had a little washing machine right in the wall, a dryer right in the wall. You could open a little door. You could wash your clothes there. And you could go in the yard an hour a day for outside exercise. But it was a really small little paved area. And if it even snowed like a quarter inch, 
no yard for nobody because it was a security thing. So you were locked up all the time. They'd come in and you, you, whatever you had in your cell, which is much, they'd come in and take everything, throw it in a laundry harper, take it out and x-ray it whenever, once a week or something like that. Couldn't have pens. You had to, they'd give you little, like, little stubs to write with. Yeah, it's basically what it was is uh, you had very little contact with other inmates, and it was just basically a segregation unit. And but the thing is, guys spend years there, and then when you go to a max, you think uh, it's like maximum guys going to a minimum. You go, holy smokes, look at all these people! You can't believe it. You know, they say there's, you see fifty people, and you almost have a heart attack. Say, oh, you feel like you're claustrophobic. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it was a trip. But uh, like it was a it was a violent place too. I don't want to make it sound like oh yeah, it's, you know, you're just locked up in your cell like that. Because you know, you know. Uh, if you're in a place where everybody's paranoid about getting killed by the next guy, it doesn't take much for somebody to go out of paranoid. So that was one of the few places, like I said, like the most violent pen I was in was in a maximalist Prince Edward Pen Chantry. But in the shoe, you know, you could always feel the tension. It was like uh, the paranoia was like a green fog on you. You know, you could just you could just feel it. It was always there. You could bump a guy, and if you didn't say sorry right away or uh, in a sincere way to them, the guy say he did that on purpose, and him and his friend be plotting to kill you. Next time you come out, you might be shanked, you know, stabbed, you know, you know. And not only that, back in the day, it was supposed to be the guys who were so violent in other pens, attack guards or other inmates that went there. So if you have guys who are already violent, and you put a bunch of violent guys together, well. You know, sooner or later, something's going to happen with somebody. So, is you know, like I seen, a, you're talking about guys going to protective custody. Man, I seen so many guys who couldn't handle it. You know, like yeah, you have to stay strong, really strong mentally, and because it's a place that'll crush your soul, man. I'm telling you. And the paranoia, if you can't handle the paranoia, if you can't keep reality and and keep all your wits and keep prepared. If you don't, all the time, 100% of the time, for your day after day, month after month, year after year, then you'll break. And I've seen a lot of guys, they couldn't do that. Some pretty tough guys, too. But, you know, there's a difference between physically tough and mentally tough, too. So, yeah, you know, like, it's the end of the line. It's a punishment thing. They say, you know, like, uh, nobody wants to be there and nobody wants to go there. That's for damn sure. So, yeah, it's the end of the line. And, yeah, the treatment there, it's not quite the sensory deprivation they have, like, in Pelican Bay and all that. There, there they really... I mean, that's out and out torture, what they're doing there. That's not even... That's not being... Uh, you don't have to do that to somebody to keep them out of trouble. There is just complete torture, you know, mental and, and physical torture there. Still, Canada is the worst we have. And it's not a you know... Might not be Pelican Bay. It's not a fun place to be either. Do you have any memories of being in a prison and having people on the outside, you know, out front with banners and cheering for you guys during something that was happening inside? Yeah, you know, for me personally, the only time I've seen that, like we've, I've been in a lot of institutions where we've we've gone on strikes. Uh, the time that I personally can say that I seen people with my own eyes and I knew from watching TV to being when I was in Edmonton Max. On Prisoner's Justice Day, it was pretty neat to see a large crowd of people. There must have been over 100. And they had signs, uh, Prisoner's Justice Day, and free the prisoners, wake up government, you know, whatever the sign was. But the fact that they came out, people on the street, you know, like a lot of these people had somebody, a husband or a son or a daughter inside jails, right? But they were always in a men's prison, so obviously, you know, we could have a son, a brother, father, whatever, you know, maybe they had somebody inside, so they had a personal reason to be there. But a lot of these people, too, just said, hey, you know, what's, these guys are human beings, what are you going to do? Are you going to treat them like animals, and then what are you going to expect the result? Or There's a lot of reasons why they did it, but I like to think that uh, the majority of people who did that, they did that because they knew in their hearts that it was the right thing to do. But anyhow, to get back to your question there, uh, yeah, that's the only time I've seen it, but it was pretty good. They'd come out every year, and they would be on the news, too. Like I said before, they, you know, the people on the outside, to me, are so essential to Prisoner's Justice Day. Prisoner's Justice Day wouldn't have been Prisoner's Justice Day. We wouldn't know what else we do now. It, wouldn't be, it might have even been forgotten if it wasn't for the people on the street who actually, you know, lawyers, family, you know, people who in positions to make you know, go to the media, you know, lawyers go to court. A lot of these guys, they're not doing it because they're getting paid. They're doing pro bono because they want to, they say, hey, there's something wrong here. So couldn't thank them enough because they have families, uh, they work, and yet they come on their time to see and do that for somebody they may not even know. For me, Prisoner's Justice Day, you know, wouldn't be it without them. Yeah, it's, it was pretty neat to see them, and it really, 
it helps the people inside too a lot because you see that and you say, hey, well, you know, we're not alone. And not only that, look at what they're doing. They're doing more than us. Let's get our ass in gear, you know, and do something. And like I said, you don't see the mass number of inmates together doing something inside. Like it's, it's reached a point now where it's uh, some do it, some don't. But it's more a personal decision. You don't work that day. You sit in your cell say, okay, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do anything for these people. I'm going to show some solidarity for the reason why we had Prisoners Justice Day for all the hundreds of years we had prisons in Canada, you know, for those reasons. And you got to think of the future, too. How about the guys next to you in your cells there, you know? you got to say, hey, you know, like, you got to start thinking more of yourself. But when you see some people like that doing that, and they, like I said, they don't know you or nothing, they're doing it. Maybe it'll get you to think and say, hey, you know, better think a little bit more than myself here. Better think of reason why. I mean, one day out of 365 days, you can't be solid. Come on. But with the people on the street, yeah, I, I couldn't say enough about them. Thank God for them, and uh, I hope they keep it up. I don't have any more questions. Do Thank you God. have things you want to say? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. listening to the third episode of What Happened to Prisoner Justice Day. If you're looking for more information about the Canadian prison system from the inside, check out penalpress.com. It's an archive of newspapers produced by prisoners dating back to the late 1940s. The site catalogs the papers by title, date, institution, and topic. It's a really great resource for learning more about the prison system and resistance on the inside. Don't miss our fourth episode featuring Marie Beemans, an outside organizer who has been supporting prisoners for more than 60 years. Marie talks to us about prisoner support organizing in Quebec, her outside perspective on Prisoner Justice Day, and why she thinks it's important for people on the outside to support prisoners. Okay, that was uh, our ongoing piece on Prisoner's Justice Day on Prison Central. This is CKUT, 90.3 FM. And uh, now we're going to play a Johnny Cash song, Hurt. myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real the needle tears a hole the old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know I cannot re-
prepare Beneath the stains of time The feelings disappear You are someone else I am still right here What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the year And you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down Okay, boys and girls, let me see. Okay, for more information on the uh, Prison Radio Show, check out past episodes of the Prison Radio Show at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prison Radio. The Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m., and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. The next prison radio show will air on Thursday, July 18th at 11 a.m. If you have any questions on anything that you have heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-4041, extension 2547. If you are in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. Feel free to write us at The Prison Radio Show, or simply PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, H3A2.
Yes, rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? It comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You want to be a human. I wasn't Jim Crow. And hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just...